behind me is Carl Malone. Okay. And behind him is Scottie Pippen. Wow. Okay. And the three, yeah, three of us have been standing. I've been hanging around with them. I've been hanging around with all of the guys from the 1960 uh, Olympic team, wow. which is Jerry West, yeah. Oscar Robertson, Jerry Lucas, and now the Dream Team. Wow. Okay. Wow. 92 Dream Team. So John Stockton's dad and I are having an adult beverage at night, <laughs> talking about his son's career. We're um, hanging around with these guys. I brought my team up there. Charles Barkley is talking to my whole team. It was phenomenal. You gotta handle the rock with flair and rhythm if you want to be judged on wood grain and concrete courts in New York. This ain't no nickel and dime. It's dribbling dimes where scoring never looked this good. I guarantee it. But was your reputation built from the playground up? Or did you call next and they took that ish? Or cause you weren't as fast as police and ambulance sirens? Or as loud as Mr. Softy Ice Cream? No. You see, this is New York City hoops in prime time. As beautiful as the skyline, it's dribbling dime. What's up, everybody? This is Emilio the Poet. What's good, everybody? This is Manny Digital, and we're back with another episode of Dribbling Dimes. I, I, I need a moment of, of calm, okay, because right now we're in the presence of greatness. Now, those that are listening already know who the guest is because it's in the title, but I'm still going to go through my introduction because I think it's critical that people understand this man's accolades. So here we go. Our guest coached for nearly 50 seasons at the same institution. Under his watch, over 150 players went Division I. Two of them just happened to be to hatch, happened to hatch from his very own loins. He's also a, per, a retired parole officer. I think you were in that capacity for about 40 years, close, close uh, enough. Yeah, around 30 years. There you go. Yeah. Oh, oh, 30? Not 40, 30. Yeah. No, then I became the director of recreation after running, uh, working in probation for 30 years. Ah, got it. Okay, perfect. Um, many people that still know him to this day never call him Bob Hurley. They call him Coach. With us today, <laughs> also, oh, wait, before we before we say his name full, full on and bring him into the show, this man is a Naismith Hall of Famer. Yes, sir. Let's give a round of applause for that. Oh, there's more accolades. There's more where that came from, right, Coach? There's more. <laughs> With us today is Bob Hurley Sr. There's so much so much we could have added there. Oh, there's, to ton, there's tons. Well, we so, would have been here all day just, just on your accolades alone. We yeah. wouldn't have gotten through an interview. Coach, coach. I, I scripted a little bit more, but I had to cut it down. It would have taken us five minutes. I didn't want you to get bored. Um, <laughs> so I said, you know, screw it. Let's just get right into it. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I like the uh, the noise. comes right from the Yankee game, I think. There you go. <laughs> Booyah. <laughs> Are you a Yankee fan? Yes. Okay. Nice. Die hard. Die hard. Good. I can tell the way you said that it was such passion. I could tell. Right <laughs> Thank you, fan through and through. Coach, uh, <laughs> well, before we get officially started, I, I want to um, thank Coach Ben Gamble um, for connecting us. Uh, that, that's a 
It's a man of his word. He told us, he told us many, many months ago he was going to make the ask. And I'm so happy that he did and you accepted. So we're very thankful for, for having you. I'm sure, even with all that's going on, I'm sure you got things to be doing, right? So for you to spend a little bit of time with us, we, we really appreciate it. Well, actually, actually, no, I'm happy to do it. And Ben was the, you know, Ben was the right guy. Uh, ben was the right guy to connect because, uh, you know, our relationship is now. My goodness, it's it's a very long time. It's right. uh, probably forty years. Wow, forty wow. years. That's amazing. So, so why don't we why don't we start? Because um, you you've had a long history in the game of basketball, but I'm curious, and we ask this of, of all our guests. What was that first moment that got you involved in the sport? Well, I, uh, basketball for me started later. It's, uh, I was a baseball football guy in Jersey City and didn't play my first game until I was in the eighth grade. Mm. And I played for my, uh, my CYO team uh, after playing, you know, playing football and played basketball and then went on to baseball. And I loved the fact that you could just take the ball and if nobody else felt like doing what you wanted to do, you could just go out. Oh my goodness, what was that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Coach. Give me one second. Something is... See, this is this is the beauty and the pain of technology. Holy Christ. Okay, here we go. That's It, it can't distract me because I'm, you know... <laughs> I'm in trouble to begin with. Nothing's going to affect me right now. <laughs> yeah, okay. so, you know, so really it was eighth grade. Yeah. And, you know, eighth grade got me uh, started to just go into the, the playground where I, uh, right next to where I went to school. Great players came out of the playground. And it was, uh, it was every day. Continued to play a little bit of football and baseball early in high school. And then just, it became basketball. It just, uh, consumed all my time i just uh loved every part of it and i've lived in the city my whole life and it's certainly you know it's certainly a sport that uh you know one ball 25 guys nets on the baskets you're good to go as long as the weather's good right was was that transition from football and baseball was that something that you just said you know what this sport right here basketball just spoke to me resonated with my soul more or did you just keep all three alive as well throughout your childhood? Well, you know, they, people always said, you know, I love the sport I'm playing at the time. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, in football season, you know, you, you might like the, you didn't like training, you didn't like going into the season preseason, but you liked the season. And then with basketball, I like the, I like the out of season, you know, the spring after you finish your season, when you're going out working, playing in the summer league games in Jersey city, when you have an entirely different crowd, you go to like Audubon Park and you might have up to a, a thousand people watching a game during the, uh, during the summer and you'd play like a preliminary game and then the pros would come out and you might have like uh, the Snookies from Harlem playing against the Morris Longbaugh from Newark and there might be four pros playing in that game on a Friday night in Jersey City and people were hanging out of the apartment houses to watch the game. And you got to uh, you got a taste of that, and I think if you compared that to the anonymity of playing baseball and how slow baseball was, that one was you know I I, I reluctantly dropped that because my dad loved it, but it just wasn't as exciting. Right. And uh, and and it was hard I think in high school. The school I went to, an awful lot of kids went out for both football and basketball. It was very hard to play both and be good in the one you like the most. And I clearly liked basketball the most once I got to the you know to high school. 
So what high school did you go attend? Well, I played at St. Peter's. St. Peter's. Uh, prep, downtown Jersey City. Got it. Okay. How, how would you say you was as an actual athlete yourself? Did you fall in love with the game because you felt you were good enough to, to really hold your own? Or was it just like you were enamored by every aspect of the game? Uh, I liked the, what he called. I, I think I liked the fact that, uh, it was, it was so, uh, it was unstructured. Mm. So I was a playground player. I mm. went to the recreation gyms when the weather was cold. I played in the outdoor playgrounds when the weather was nice. When we got into school, I was in our high school gym. And then when tryouts began, you know, I come running in the door with little sophistication as most of the guys who grew up in my time in the early sixties. We just played all the time. You know, we didn't have AU basketball. We didn't have coaches that when our season ended, we didn't see those guys anymore. Right. We just went back to the neighborhood. You watch the older guys play and you just played all the time because you love playing. And you're also concerned that you didn't want somebody to be getting an edge that you're going to compete with. Mm. So somebody else that you're playing with in high school, what are they doing right now? Uh, they can't be playing as much as me because I'm on the courts all day long. Right. So, so you're constantly paying attention to that uh, in your in your neighborhoods, like you guys, like that's that's how steel's sharpening steel, like making sure you're putting in enough time on the courts, and if you don't see your competitors or your friends out there, you know you've got that slight edge. Yeah, and also you know what was was significant the uh, the social structure of the playground. There were four baskets in my uh, St. Paul's courtyard where I grew up. And based on your skill level, that's where you went. Mm, right. So like on a Saturday afternoon, it was full court. Most of the time, it was the half-court playground where there'd be four half-court games going. And you went to the basket that you, you needed to play on. And you were always aspiring to move up. So you might start on basket four. You wanted to be playing on the full court on Saturday afternoons with the, the older guys that could really play. And you wanted them to to make sure that you're included. And that was how you worked your way up the ladder. And it happened, you know, in all neighborhoods and every urban area that you were trying to get your, your cred. And after you did it in your own playground, you wandered a little bit and you went to other playgrounds, kind of like a gunslinger going to the, uh, walking down uh, the street and, uh, you know, in Dodge city, like Gunsmoke. My favorite uh, <laughs> show during the day. <laughs> so, you, so you were Clint Eastwood before his time, basically. You were, uh, no, so. I was I was James Arness, oh. who was Matt Dillon, Gunsmoke. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you were taking no uh, taking no prisoners at the time. I bet. Yeah, Clint Eastwood was too young. Was I bet. Too young. I was going to say that's why I said before his time because I knew he, 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 <laughs> I couldn't get the age right for sure. By the way, happy belated birthday. You just had a birthday not that long ago, right? Yeah, I, my birthday was uh, two weeks ago. Nice. Congrats. Happy belated birthday. What is it? The big uh, the big 32? What? It was uh, that uh, twice and, and, and some, uh, you know, some uh, uh, something else on top. <laughs> Coach, yeah. I, I, I want to say this, man. Um, I'm work. I, I, forgive me because I'm, I'm a Pisces. We go a little bit all over the place, but just bear with me. What happens is that I see the passion. I've, I've had the opportunity to watch uh, some video clips of you and how you operate. Were you an, always a passionate person in terms of whether you were playing the game? Or was it something you just kind of picked up more of when you got into coaching? I think, yeah, I, I would say probably that the, 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 the thing that I had from the very beginning and had till the end was a competitive nature. Mm. 
always very competitive. You know, uh, I played softball until my late 20s, until my wife uh, pulled the plug. I played uh, Saturday afternoons. We played two-hand touch with the guys. So I was always involved in stuff, uh, always remained competitive, and brought that to brought that to the kids at St. Anthony's when I began coaching. And, you know, found that, you know, I always believed that the uh, the talent that was in front of me just needed to be challenged. The mm-hmm. guys could play. And they just didn't always give everything that they had because they didn't either believe in it or they weren't organized enough to have, like, the, the necessary work ethic to get it all out. Or maybe the other parts in life. You know, a kid that's not doing well in school probably isn't an organized guy when he goes out to work out. You know, or a kid comes from an environment where uh, neighborhood's a little rough. He's going to have a hard time having that day-to-day structure, so he needs help. Wow. So, uh, you know, I think I think most of us, I think I needed help from people around me until I was in my 30s. And certainly kids in high school, you know, uh, you, you, you want to be able to lead them. And you want them to kind of understand what things they're not good at, one of those areas, and what things they have a lot of potential to get better at. Because, I mean, if you just come into high school, you're not a good reader. Mm. And then you look back in a kid's background, and he just hasn't been reading. Well, then, you know, you try to get him interested in the sport of basketball and start reading about, the. you know, you go back and it's like watching The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. People that had lost a little interest in basketball – after watching that series, they're all back. Right. They're sitting watching the summer league games right now because Jordan brought people back because that all of those episodes were so interesting, and he was such a you know sort of a dedicated, competitive guy that it made everybody look and say, "Wow, I forgot about all those qualities. That is, this is phenomenal." How do you, how do you? So you said something that I thought was really interesting, right? Because you coach so many players. Uh, how do you customize your approach to help your players, right? Because not everything works for everyone. And it seems like you did take that responsibility on. I wonder how you do that across so many players every season. Well, I, I think you start with, uh, with the kids that you have on your team. You give freedom to kids as they earn freedom. So when I say freedom, I mean the ability to like come down in a possession and just look around and not have to lean to see what coaches call and make a call themselves or take advantage of an opportunity. The younger the kids were at St. Anthony's, the more they had to learn, in my mind, how to really play the way we wanted to play. So a really talented sophomore would show flashes, but he would have like an amber light. He wouldn't have the green light. By the time the kid would get to junior year, that amber is starting to turn, you know, it's starting to turn to green. Right. And by the time the kid is a senior, it's green and it never goes back to uh, either amber or red. It's just uh, this time you've spent together and this, uh, uh, this work you've done to get the kid ready to play in college, you want him to play loose and free so the coaches can see what you think they need to see to properly recruit the kid at the, at the level that he can play at. Because the big thing is you always want to win in high school, but you also want to look at the kids and be able to go home after practice and uh, maybe turn on the television and see a kid playing. Or 
a local college here in New Jersey or New York, uh, finish practice, hop in a car and go watch a kid play someplace. That's the, that was the reward for everybody in high school, watching the kids, you know, after they had played, have a career after that and, you know, and ultimately move on and, you know, get a degree. I have a quick question. Do, how Was there ever an exception that you made with uh, incoming freshmen or sophomores that you gave the green light because you saw this person was just so ready or, or was that not oh, yeah. the case? Yeah. It, you know, it usually – it usually is caused by necessity because okay. you'd like the younger kid to learn from a veteran that's teaching him all of the things about playing. Cause when you, when a kid reaches senior year, I want the kid to be a really good offensive player, but I want to be a, him to be able to guard people. So when he gets to college, he doesn't get stuck in this transition now where when he played in high school, the coach was afraid to give him tough guys to guard because he was afraid he was going to get in foul trouble or he's playing zone when he gets in foul trouble. So all of a sudden now he gets to college and you're guarding some dude and they give him space and you're trying to stay in front of this guy and coach has been hiding you. All of a sudden you're sitting next to the other guys watching somebody else play. So I think it's sometimes you had to do difficult stuff with these guys and guys did jump out early. I could give you one, uh, back in the early 80s, when Ben was a freshman in high school, Ben Gamble's freshman uh, at high school, by the time he got to senior year, we had a freshman named David Rivers. And David Rivers went on to play at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he started working out with us, uh, everybody knew this kid was special. He was the player of the year in our area here as a sophomore. And it was just getting him to learn to do the other things over the next couple of years because his potential and promise, uh, you know, anyone could see that this kid was going to be a terrific player. So, you know, circumstances certainly dictate. I'd love to say that every year your sophomores are, uh, are working their way up the ladder. And that means you have a really good team if a really good sophomore is not, uh, doesn't have a really big role. But, you know, we had freshmen, you know, Elijah Ingram, who uh, had a very good career here at St. Anthony's. He started as a freshman. Anthony Perry, who's the school's all-time leading scorer, Anthony started as a freshman. Uh, so there were uh, there were um, exceptions, but we really felt that young kids would not be able to play ahead of older kids because the older kids had been they had been paying their dues, and it was going to be very difficult for a younger kid to beat out an older kid. I, I bet. <laughs> I have a question about that because. <clears throat> Excuse me. I you you revert back to you saying you you know it's important that you want to win. Like you want to win as a coach in high school, regardless. Even though these are teaching moments, I question. My question is, the the fact that you may have a freshman or sophomore that may be more talented than that senior, does that decision become that much more difficult, or do you just stick to your guns and say, you know what, they pay their dues. I don't care if we lose this game. The senior gets the nod. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a difficult situation. Everybody, every this happens to everybody because right. uh, coaches will always tell the teams that they don't have favorite players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. But we would have favorite players, and most of the time, the favorite player for a particular team is the kid who's the overachiever. Mm -hmm. And with this overachiever, you're trying to see the, the uh, you know the final uh, result. You're trying to you want this to go really well for him. But then at the same time, reality is there's a talent waiting to play. Right. And you're going to go with the loyalty for as long as it seems logical. Right. 
and when it would when the loyalty would interfere with outcome then you have to start open up the lines of communication and you have to start talking to the kid about you know uh here's probably what we're going to do you're still going to get the starts you guys might wind up starting to split the position if you're having a good game you'll play more but yeah i think the way you ease you ease yourself into the situation is to let the older kid know you still want to see him succeed. Right. It's all about team. Uh, he's not going to lose his job. And then you keep bringing the other kid along, telling him, hey, you're a freshman or a sophomore. You know, I want this kid to have a role on this team. And we're bringing you in off the bench. And, you know, being the sixth man or one of the first people in off the bench, you're giving a team a spark. Right. And the one that helps all coaches is it's not who starts the game. It's who finishes the game. That's right. So maybe in all of those games now, that kid you've used as much as you can during the game, but maybe to finish it, the, the, there's a little more talent on the court. And then maybe when you get back to the decision-making in the last minute, minute and a half, maybe that kid's back in there again because he gives stability. And the young one might just be a little bit, you might not be sure what's going to happen with the ball in a close game late. So there's a way you can do it. Uh, when you're a high school coach, you care about that process. Right. At the college level, you, 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 kids are going to be recruited over by others. So yeah, you talk about it, and then the natural evolution, you know, it's a predatory situation. Yeah. That better player is going to uh, you know, gobble up playing time, of and course. that's just something happens. What, what would you say, and I feel like you've explained a little bit of the flashes of what I would piece together as kind of your coaching philosophy. But, but if you, if somebody asked you the question, I'm sure they've asked you plenty. What, what would you summarize it to be? What is your coaching philosophy? Uh, I, I always felt that the kids would be right off the bat. We'd be very competitive. We would uh, be in great physical shape. We would do a lot of stuff at a season, weight training, distance running, a lot of stuff with the kids so that any time there was going to be an opportunity, maybe in the spring where a coach looks at them, maybe during the summer at a camp or a, a tournament, that they're always sharp and it opens up a door. And then in the preseason, there's a routine where everybody gets back together again. And now in the preseason, everybody's working to come into the season. Now you get into your season and it would always be the conditioning, uh, stressing of fundamentals. You know, we always said that our records were very, very good. And we'd always look back at the amount of times we lost games where the other team beat us because we gave them opportunities. And that percentage was very low. Being an awful lot of good teams over the years because we were hard to play against. We wouldn't crack. We wouldn't make fundamental mistakes. Uh, we would take care of the ball. We guarded all the time. And we never relied on one kid. Our best kids were really talented kids over the years. Many kids had, you know, played at the college level, played in the NBA. But when they were high school players, the mark for them, could they make the other players better? And their success as a player was going to be determined by what their team did that year. So some really good kids at St. Anthony's, terrific players. If their team didn't win a state championship in senior year, they would defer to other guys who managed to be part of that in that year? Because it is a team. It is a team sport. So uh, competitiveness. We always wanted to guard. We played man to man. We always wanted guys. Not that we wouldn't change things, but we were going to play man to man because we wanted guys to accept challenges and guard the best guys that were out there. You know, we didn't want a guy in scouting report 
not looking at the coach because he doesn't want to guard, uh, you know, uh, uh, Malik Sealy, or he doesn't want to guard, uh, you know, any one of the a million guys we played against over the years. He's looking, he's looking away. He doesn't want that. We want them all hoping they get those assignments because that's part of developing the competitive spirit and the guy that when he does that, it really shows the other kids uh, he's he's up for this challenge. Right. Coach, you, your track record speaks for itself, but I'll just name some things because I'm blown away by, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you won 26 state championships in 39 years as a coach, or is it 29? Uh, it, 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 26, I was there for, it was 45 years 45. as the varsity coach, okay. and then five years I was the assistant coach there. I was the assistant for two, and I was the head coach for 26. So, which means that the 28 gives us one more championship than the Yankees right now. <laughs> so, They're sitting on 27. We still have that one on them right now. <laughs> except, that they, except that they can get more. And we're in, the, we're in, we're in, the, you know, uh, we're in a free fall right now. Oh, God. <laughs> wait, wait, let me add on to it. Um, five of your teams have gone undefeated. Is that correct? Uh, let me think. Uh, <laughs> 74, okay. 89, 96, 2004, 2008, oh. 2011, 2012, and 2016. So whatever that number would be. Eight. A couple oh. more. Maybe seven or eight. Eight. Yeah, that was eight. Yeah. I was, I was, I was picking, putting the fingers up. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um. Okay, so this is it goes back to this is my question now. Okay. Um, you've had such huge success. My question is, did you have a mentor or even a basketball coach that you lucked up to that you wanted to kind of pattern your philosophy or was it something that you was ingrained in you by your father or like I just just take me to that process because I feel like this is like you, you got the cheat code somewhere. Like, yeah, there's something else somewhere. You here, got the cheat code, and I want to know what it is. Well, yeah. Here's here's the world as I grew up. I said to you, we never saw the high school coach. So my high school coach was very good from the beginning of the season till the end of the season, and never saw never saw him again till the following year. So like at a season, you know, we always say if we ever had someone just say to us, "Well, don't spend this time doing this today. Do something different. That'll make you a better player." Or you can take a day off because you've been playing six hours a day. We didn't have that. When I got to uh, when I got to begin begin coaching, I was in St. Peter's College when I began coaching. Right. So I was. You had just been by, cut. You had just been cut from the basketball team, right? Is that? I played, yeah, my freshman year at St. Peter's College, I averaged about eighteen a game with the freshman team, but I wasn't on scholarship. Okay. So I went out for the team the second year, and they actually would have had to cut a kid on scholarship to keep me. I was better than you know, two, three, four of them. I ultimately would have played my last couple of years in college if I was part of that because I was a young, you know, late to the sport. But that got me into coaching very early. And then I was still really a player who was coaching because a year and a half after getting cut, I had the freshman team at, at St. Anthony's. So I'm on the floor practicing. I'm being influenced only by a couple of people that I had come across. And then my, the head coach, John Ryan, started taking me to a, a clinic once or twice a year. There weren't a lot of them. And I went and I had a chance to hear John Wooden. I had a chance to hear uh, a bunch of people. But what really changed for me was the summer of 1974. I had coached the varsity level for two years. We won two state championships. 
I was on top of things. I really, you know, I really thought I was pretty good. Yeah. And then Howard Garfinkel, who ran the five-star camp, he invited me to go work up in Pennsylvania and work the, the June week. So this is the summer of 74 after my second season coaching. And I went up there and I found out almost uh, halfway through the first day, I found out how little I knew. <laughs> and oh. I was just, I was a fraud. I was like doing the <laughs> playground stuff. When an older guy in the playground would tell the younger guys, you got to do this. That's all I was really doing for my first years in high school. I didn't really have, I was enthusiastic. I would be, I was hands-on, I was on the court, but I didn't know. So all of a sudden now I'm working with Yubi Brown. I'm working with Mike Fratello, Rick Pitino. Uh, I was playing in counselor games at night. And Robert Parrish, the chief, yes. was a sophomore, sophomore in college when I was playing in these camp, camp games. Oh, so wow. I did that for 10 summers. I took a week each summer, week of vacation, went up and worked, brought my kids from St. Anthony's up. And I went up there right through uh, David Rivers and then Kenny Wilson. And after that 10-year period, I felt that I had done a lot of catching up. I had learned to network. Mm. I found out about like how to open up doors with recruiting and the kids from St. Anthony's from the early seventies. And then the kids by the mid eighties, I was a much better, I wasn't the player I was, but I was way better coach. I had way better contacts for the kids mm. and I had really worked at the craft. So then I think you're talking to somebody who's in the eighties, who's a little bit ambitious, but I know that, excuse me, in Jersey city, I totally love what I'm doing, but maybe at that point I would look around because of having worked the summers and watching where all these guys are five star, you know, turn where they where their careers took them. You were you getting paid at St. Anthony's as a coach? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was rosary beads <laughs> and uh, you got some, you know, uh, some you know, some you, communion bread. You, 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 you it was not, you know, you were working, you were working a part-time job while you were supposed to be a part-time because I was a student in the beginning. And then I, you know, when I get out of school, I, uh, I was a probation officer as I began varsity coach. So yeah, you always, uh, I enjoyed the kids. I enjoyed the challenge. Uh, but there was never any compensation for the entire time. Never any real compensation. So that that to me is, uh, I mean, beyond incredible. Because I'm thinking, all right. So in the back of my mind, you're telling me all this, the camps that you're attending, the the knowledge that you're you know ingesting through all these seasons of of interaction with all these people. But at the in the back of my mind, I'm saying, but you also have a full time job. So you're that's where you're getting the bacon, right? And and then yeah. it dawned on me, I'm like, I don't think he was getting paid at St. Anthony's. So well, you got. You got you got a you got a, a stipend, right? But right. the stipend was really you know like the varsity coach at St. Anthony's wasn't getting as paid as well as maybe the assistant coaches in a public high school, right? Wow. And wow. Uh, and it wasn't going to change much. I think after after being honestly after being there forty plus years, I was making about seventy five hundred dollars, and then the last probably half a dozen years. My wife gave my uh, my salary back to the school, and then I became the president of the high school for, I guess, the last three years school was open, and uh, that was uh, not salary, too. So it got to a point where now I'm there full-time, and I'm coaching the afternoons, and I'm, I'm just doing it now because uh, life has been good to me. Right. The, uh, my experience there with the kids, 
the uh, like watching my own children grow up around it. You know, the balance that my kids have growing up in a in a diverse uh, school, uh, the kids have played for me, the relationships you develop that are lifelong. You know, it's just uh, there were so many things that, you know, as long as you can pay your bills, you can be happy. And you just look around the adult world and how many rich, unhappy people are there in this world. All right. So if it meant a couple of Miller lights and we order a pizza on Friday night, that was uh, a great, that was, a that great was, weekend. Uh, that was campaign of bottled beer. That <laughs> that's right. So, that, so, so that's where we that's where we were. And it was never it was never a problem because uh, the success and watching the kids move on and and this this uh, conveyor belt of guys that were just making us proud and looking at new ones jump on. It was uh, as as any high school coaches that it did it for a long time. The experience was just something that uh, you treasured. Well, first of all, after that comment, I'm going to have a beer on your name this evening, coach. That's a, that's a fact. That's for sure. That's a fact. I, I applaud that. I I, I anticipate uh, you know when we're done here about the third inning of the Yankee game, I'll have an adult beverage. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> so you spoke about your children, and um, me. I grew up a, a big Duke Blue Devil fan. Watching your son, Bobby play and um I, i'm curious now what was your household like with your children and yourself as far as basketball was it something that they gradually grew up into or was it kind of like this is what we're doing here because i love it this much like take me through the dynamic of that household well we we wanted them you know being a probation officer mm-hmm. and coaching okay we wanted to make sure that they were involved in activities right. and we wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, and this is my son, sons, my daughter, you know, different situation. You know, I think with a daughter, you don't have to worry about their time outside of the house, in and out of gyms, all the things that right. guys can do. So you, you, you want to be concerned about they're tired. They're in the house. Uh, who are they, who are they around? And, uh, uh, the St. Anthony basketball, when they were in grammar school, both Bobby and Danny, that was the era of David Rivers, who I mentioned, yep. Ben Gamble and uh, uh, Jarrett King and, and uh, Mandy Johnson from the teams right before um, uh, David Rivers. My sons grew up around it. The teams were ultra successful, and they started to look at the recognition and attention and adulation that the kids were getting to play on those teams and they were watching them move on to college, and we were watching them play on television now as my sons were getting later in grammar school. So it was very easy to have. They had uh, role models that didn't have to be guys that they watch on television. They're role models that they saw in this little gym in Jersey City, White Eagle Hall, where they would be shooting with them before the guys would play and then hanging around with them before we'd lock up and developing friendships with these guys that you know continue to, to this day. So that was huge. And then as they reach high school, big deal for them was, were they ready for this? Because not only are you going into a competitive St. Anthony's, but your father's the coach. And we got to figure out here, this can't be a double standard. Well, it turned out to be a double standard because I was way harder on Bobby than I was on anybody else when he joined us because I, I had to try to figure out how all the kids could see that it definitely wasn't a double standard. Right. And Jerry Walker, who was teammate of Bobby's through high school, uh, Jerry would say that they would always leave the gym saying, I feel, I feel sorry for myself because he pushes me so much. 
but I really feel sorry for Bobby because he pushes him even more. Yeah. Wow. Now, I don't know that to be true. I don't know that to be true. I know that what I would always say to the guys, and when I finished coaching, I didn't have anyone ever say this to me. I'm very proud of this. I wanted them to be able to come back to me 10 years after high school and say, Coach, thank you for pushing me. When I was in high school, I was this or this or this, and you got me through that. I didn't want them to come back to me 10 years later, particularly because these are city guys, right. and say, Coach, I didn't need you to be my friend. I needed you to push me. I really need you to push me. I wish you hadn't been so uh, so much of a social worker. Mm -hmm. Did I have a little social work in the whole thing? Yes, but way concerned about uh, tough love, getting them out of tough situations in the city, and then getting them to the dorm room in college where they can get soft every day if they want. Because <laughs> they're they're uh, you know they're uh, off my watch now. Right. You you've impacted so many lives, right? And you kind of just recounted some of the some of the conversations you've had over the years with some of these guys. Have you ever felt like you've fallen short with anyone that you've coached? Yeah, well, you know, you run into so many. We had so many kids that came to the school that went on to do phenomenal things that we're extremely proud of. And we think we did a we did a very high percentage of reaching the tough kids and getting to them. Yeah. But there were a bunch of kids that we just couldn't, we couldn't simulate the rest of their lives with a school day and then a couple hours of practice when they would go back to the neighborhood, when they go back perhaps to some dysfunction at home, okay? Uh, they would go back and they just wouldn't be ready for the next day. And then, you know, you put bad day on top of bad day yeah. and then ultimately you wind up falling behind and we had kids that we, uh, you know, lost along the way. And unfortunately, most of them occurred in sophomore year when they were all sophomores. It was the time we couldn't get them to bridge the, I'm a freshman in high school. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wide-eyed about what's going on. Now I'm a sophomore. I think I know a lot more. And I'm not taking care of all the details. And I'm letting maybe the guys home steer me a little bit. You know, the guys would say stuff along the lines. And I still see, unfortunately, a lot of the, a lot of the guys who are still in the city here who, who just took the shortcut. They used the guys around them to shortcut. Mm -hmm. And then they could never get back on course. You know, maybe finish playing in high school, but never turned out, you know, A, getting a degree, and 1A, uh, also playing basketball while getting a degree. That's sad. I have a question regarding that. Um, so... The last decade, I'd say, I'm speaking to different various coaches uh, in basketball, um, they've noticed a change in the student body as far as they, they notice a little bit more sensitivity within students. I wonder if this was something that you noticed as well as far as your coaching, because I know you're a very intense and passionate coach and it comes from your competitive nature. Did you feel like you've ever had to kind of, um, how can I say, change a little bit or, or, or kind of, did you have to go soft coach? Did you have to get soft? <laughs> yeah, I, I would you. say from where I was, <laughs> I was, I had moved someplace in the direction of soft. Oh, wow. The kids, oh, interesting. The kids that played for me, mm -hmm. who played for me for the first 20 years would say I had become like grandfatherly. <laughs> but my, my explanation of this, I really believe that, my explanation is that when you're in high school and you're an adolescent male, 
anyone making you do something on a regular basis where you're, you're meant to, to reach your potential each day, that's going to be a challenge. Right. So from the beginning until the end, uh, I was always trying to get them to reach the, cha- to, you know, to uh, reach their potential. And probably the way I did things changed from being that hands-on aggressive guy to being as the later years, more of a, you know, uh, you know, the grandfather who's working with them. But th- those younger guys who play for me would say, that's an evil grandfather. Right. <laughs> I'm not so sure, but definitely not who I was. And I always felt that in all this whole process, if a kid knows that you truly care about them mm-hmm. and you are constantly pushing them, it's you c- because you think there's more there. Right. The kids at St. Anthony's would always know when I stopped the pushing, that was time to worry because we were now, you were now drifting out of the infamous rotation. <laughs> you always wanted to be in the rotation. And the rotation would be based on how you were working every day. So the rotation, some years might be five and you think you have one more guy. And other years, there might be a couple of positions where guys are equal. So that means maybe the rotation is eight, almost nine. So then they're all going to play, and then you're going to figure out who plays the best on that given game. So everybody wanted to be in the rotation, and the rotation changed every single day. Mm. If you finished a bad day on Tuesday, you went off the floor with a white shirt on Tuesday afternoon. When you came back on Wednesday, you still had that white shirt on. If you didn't have a good practice the day before a game, you could lose your job the day before a game. Now, it's up to me to make sure the best players never lose their job the day before the game unless they're really, you know, dogging practice. But we always want, even if it's a short practice, we want you to, to work hard because there was never such a thing as a game day player. A kid that didn't work a practice was only a game day player. It didn't exist. I, I want to switch slightly, um, just kind of taking into account what's going on in the present uh, right now with COVID-19 and things kind of being shut down for the most part when it comes to the foreseeable future in high school basketball. We still don't know kind of what that's going to look like. Um, What do you tell these kids that are aspiring to play at a high level this upcoming season, whenever that may, you know, come to fruition? What are you telling them that they need to be focused on right now in order to come out of the gates swinging? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first thing, as we said earlier about, like all the kids St. Anthony's, being in basketball shape is a 12-month gig. You're maybe not in, in season shape all the time, but you're in basketball shape all the time. You're always, there's a ball that's always comfortable in your hand. So you're, you're, you're trying to find ways. Now, the rims are back up in Jersey City. You know, it was a long time. It was only, I don't know, a month ago that the rims were back up in the playgrounds. So guys are back playing. Uh it's extremely important right now. You're all seeing the way the sport's changing. Shooting and positionless basketball is the way the, the game is going now. Right. And a big kid who plays with his back to the basket, who expects to get the ball thrown inside 15, 18 times a game, he's only getting it now if he's out, you know, out away from the basket, setting ball screens and diving to the front of the rim. That's right. the way the sport has changed. So I think now... The ability to shoot is unbelievably important. Kids have to shoot every single day. 
Uh, the one thing that I, they can do right now is they can go on, uh, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can punch out almost a drill for anything you need to do right now right. and then find some new time to go someplace like guys used to shooting time at the playground in the city. Better be early. You want to go shoot on a Saturday at one o'clock and you go in the playground. You're in the wrong place. Right. That place is already 40, 50 guys are there. Right. You got to get there at nine o'clock in the morning when guys are just, uh, you know, stretching for the first time. You got to know where your workout should be. And maybe you're back late after guys finish. Uh, street lights are on. Playground may be empty now and you're back in there shooting again. Or you find somebody who can open up a gym, you know, here in Jersey. That's you know, right now. I think kids have to take advantage of good weather and be outside as much as possible. Uh, jump rope, all kinds of things being ready and use everything, imitate anything they can so that when something does open now, and we know that like an example with a kid is college coaches, they're dead until at least September 30th. Mm -hmm. So no one is going to see anybody play really until we get into October. And then we don't know if there's going to be a, uh, a winter season for the, uh, for kids. So it's, uh, it's, it's unfair it's the world we're all in. Basketball is part of this whole thing. Everybody, you know, with 166,000 people having lost their lives and numbers going up, uh, kids have to realize this is across the board. This is a, uh, you know, a 1917, 1918, you know, more than 100 years ago is the last time our world was like this. None of us, you know, have seen it or will ever see anything like this again. And we, we have to wait and hope that we, you know, we get to the end of it. Yeah. Coach, um, you've had a, a, an amazing track record in high school. And one thing that jumped out of me for me was like, with all this success, was it ever an option or was it ever an idea for you to try to coach in higher levels, maybe even aspire for an MBA or something with all your track record? Like, did you ever like tamper with that idea of like, let me get a... Yeah, I think I think five star got me to be uh, aware of the world that was out there. And I'll use the example of when I worked five star, uh, Pete Gillen was a high school coach over in Brooklyn. OK, and he left he left the high school through work with five star and he went to Notre Dame as an assistant. And he ultimately recruited David Rivers, who wound up uh, going there. And after Dave's freshman year, Pete got the job at uh, Xavier and he called me up. And he asked me if I wanted to go join him. And, you know, my wife and I spoke about it and we flew out to Cincinnati. We did the whole thing. We checked schools, we checked homes. We did the whole thing. Uh, I was very, uh, had very good relationship with Pete. I was very comfortable going to work for him. And we came home and we were going to do it. And my son sat us down and gave us the, uh, they grilled us about all the things. Uh, we're going to live in Cincinnati. We've been, our whole lives, we wanted to play at St. Anthony's. Uh, Bobby even went through the routine of, you know, I'm at a formidable age. I'm turning 14. And I'm like, <laughs> my, yeah, my, my support system's going to completely change. They had it all done. I called Pete the next morning and said, Pete, can't happen. These two kill me here. They had one nothing to do with it. So after that happened, many jobs opened up locally here. But... Uh, Jack Curran at Malloy, mm -hmm. um, Morgan Wooten at DeMatha. There were many coaches that coached for a long time at the high school level. And it wasn't, in my mind, just 
a high school coach. I thought those people were significant. And I think as time went on, I just looked at myself and said, you know, hey, I went to college in Jersey City. I flew on a plane for the first time when I was 23 years old, my wife and I going on a honeymoon. Okay. So there were things there. Okay. I was a neighborhood guy. Big deal was getting on a bus and going to Journal Square to the movies. There was a movie theater that you could walk to in my neighborhood. Right. So getting out of the neighborhood, I was like the kids are playing for me at St. Anthony's. I never left Jersey City, still haven't left. So that one step was going to be a big one. It would have been a lot easier if I had gone from high school to college. And I think the doors would have been open, which deep in the recesses has always been why I wanted the kids to go away to college. So whatever options were available to any of the kids from St. Anthony's, they had really broadened their horizons. They were ready to do almost anything because they got out of neighborhood to go to St. Anthony's. Then they left Jersey City to go to college. And then from there, now they're ready to whatever the next step would be. You were able to make the Naismith Hall of Fame from the seat you've sat in for so many years. Was that ever on your mind? Like, did you ever get to a point where you were, no? No, what happened was it became, all of a sudden I was nominated. Now, I got in in 2010. Maybe I was nominated in 2008. So I was told I'd been nominated. So all of a sudden I'm saying to my wife, yo, this is, uh, you know, isn't this amazing? And then I started to doing like it's Morgan Wooten. There were two coaches at the time. So I looked at and said, oh, uh. Uh, nice, but uh, let's take a look. Uh, it didn't happen that year. Mm. And then 2009, again, nominated. Didn't, because it's two processes. It's a nomination process. And they vote you past that to another committee. And oh. that committee votes you in. Okay. So you can buy the two. Uh, you're vetted twice. Okay. okay. So after being vetted twice, in 2009, I went to the sideline again. So the truth is, the third year, 2010, I, my wife and I would go to mass every day during Lent. So we're going to mass. And uh, do we have Gabe with us? I have my grandson with us. So I'm carrying him. We're going to 12 o'clock mass. The phone rings on Ash Wednesday, mm-hmm. and it's the Basketball Hall of Fame. So I say to my wife, I'm not answering this again. <laughs> Two in a row, no good. So she said, come on, we're going to church. You got to answer the this phone. This is it. This so is the I, time you do it. Takes my grandson. I answer the phone and I go in. So then I go in and that uh, that phone call, uh, you know, in the beginning of the NCAA tournament, kind of in uh, in 2010, and it was, uh, uh, you know, for everybody that has, you know, the recreation guys who let me go in the gym from the, uh, from my grammar school coach who said to me, I got to get a left hand if I want to make the freshman team. <laughs> Everyone. Everyone in five-star who answered my questions, every kid that uh, tolerated my competitiveness, every assistant coach who just walked out of practice sometimes saying, can I ever please this guy? Every one of them I have to thank for, uh, for this because from 2010 till now, I don't care what happens. I, I'm in that thing. And I don't think they can, you know, uh, Can't revoke uh, take it. me out. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm there. And at, at this age, nothing is going to happen that's going to make them want to take me out. I think. <laughs> you know, I think that's safe. I, I have a I have a quick question um, regarding that that moment when you got inducted, right? 
um, snooping, snooping around, I know you sat next to Carl Malone on that bus, right? On, I think it was on the way to, to the enshrinement, right? Um, and take us through that moment because I know something happened where he kind of, there was a gesture that he conveyed to oh, you. Oh, yeah. Oh, we got to go back. We got to go back a day earlier. Okay, let's and do what it. What happens? Yeah, day earlier, uh, there's, a, there's a, a ceremony in the Hall of Fame where they're on NBA TV Live. Yep. All of the people going in line up. There's a red carpet, and you're going down the red carpet, going up on the stage. You're getting your blazer. So I got a Hall of Fame blazer Woo! in this closet. Now, when do you wear it? Okay. You're gonna, when can you wear it? You're going to have to take a picture of it so I can use it for this podcast. That's when you're going to wear it. <laughs> okay. I'll get Mrs. Hurley to get there it. There you go. <laughs> it's like you're, you're throwing yourself on top of people if you actually put this jacket on. Like, you know, I can't go out to dinner with friends and put the blazer on. You know, so it's, it's a wonderful thing. I don't, know what, I don't know what happens to it. So anyway, they're all going up. Now, Cynthia Cooper is right in front of me. So they announced that she's, uh, she's go up her pictures up. There's one of those guys with the headset on, standing there. He's going to tell you to go. I'm next up behind me is Carl Malone. Okay. And behind him is Scotty Pippen. Wow. Okay. And three, yeah, three of us have been standing. I've been hanging around with them. I've been hanging around with all of the guys from the 1960 uh, Olympic team, which is Jerry West, yeah. Oscar Robertson, Jerry Lucas, and now the Dream Team. Wow. Okay. Wow. 92 Dream Team. So. John Stockton's dad and I are having an adult beverage at night, talking about his son's career. We're um, hanging around with these guys. I brought my team up there. Charles Barkley is talking to my whole team. It was phenomenal. But now, here we go. These are my buddies. Now I'm I'm like uh, I'm like like their coach. You know, they they revere me. They're being very nice to me. And now my name is my name is uh, announced. The guy waves, and I take a step. And I can't move. And I can't move. And I hear laughing behind me. Carl Malone reaches under my blazer and he grabs my belt. <laughs> Anybody knows how big Carl Malone is. Carl grabs your belt. Ain't going anywhere. You're not doing okay? nothing. So I'm there and I turn and look over my shoulder and you hear Carl Malone and Scotty Pippen laughing like kids on my team pulling a prank on the JV coach. <laughs> I turn and he releases my belt and it's downhill to go to the stage. And I go flying down, oh. maintain my balance up on a stage to get my jacket. But, <laughs> but my revenge is Carl's wife comes in for the very last night on Saturday night. I get Carl's wife and I tell her that he embarrassed me on TV and he held on to my belt. And she looked at me, and I could see that he was in deep trouble. And I departed knowing that I was going to even that off. I never got Scotty Pippen, but I got called. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is great. Let me tell you something, Coach. Oh, my God. First of all, Carmelo, shame on you. My God. Like, why would you do that to somebody? I don't even know. But I, I, I want to get a little bit about uh, your coaching because, you know, again, this speaks volumes. But a little bit about the X's and O's, if you will. Um, what would you say the most difficult part of coaching in your experience has been? And what has been the not-so-difficult part about coaching? Well, you know what you do? You, you develop individual talent 
out of season. Remember, we talked about like the spring and the summer and the fall. You want guys playing all the time, getting better. So you, everybody in your team, I got everybody playing September, uh, you know, uh, spring, summer, fall. Now you get them all together and now guys have roles. So guys that thought their role was going to be whatever it is, now you have to get everybody together and now sell, sell everybody on. I have to break guys down a little bit so that we can be such a, um, uh, a, a unit that flows, the pieces all really work that we don't have tug of war because we don't have identification. So the one thing we always tried to do is get, uh, we uh, really work on balance. We never had crazy big scorers. We never kept kids in games to score points. We generally used the whole team and we would rather have like seven guys get eight or more points than one guy get 30 and uh, maybe one more guy in the high teens and a bunch of other guys that are, you know, get a piece of the pie. We wanted them all being guys that on a given game, any player can hurt the other team if they're not prepared for that player in that game. But also the flip side is in any game, one of your best players could totally go off in a big game and do something just unbelievable because the talent was there. And in a given game, everybody realized that he just had it. And we were going to ride this. So there were championship games quite a few times where a guy would have his highest scoring game of the season would be in a championship. And that would always be where legend grows because, you know, he didn't get it so that he get his thousand and then they stop the game and mom gets the flowers and you get the game ball and you're winning by 40. This is the game that's a champ could be a state championship or could be a Christmas tournament championship, might be a game on ESPN, and the guy just goes off. And now everybody knows that's what he looks like when his team needs him to go off. The rest of the time, he can fit into a role. So if I'm a college coach, I'm not worrying about this guy not being able to come to my program and slide into a role and then try to carve out a bigger role as he gets older. Right. That's phenomenal. What do you remember? Who your first D one recruit was? Our first kid, yeah. Our first kid was Daryl Charles. Darryl and that Charles. was 19, 19, 1974. Good story. Like mm. Daryl is Daryl's a senior. We had won a state championship his his uh, junior year. We were twenty seven and two. And now in his senior year, now he's recruited from the very beginning of the year by North Carolina, and basically schools. In uh, a big five from Philly, uh, New Jersey, uh, New York, up into up into like Boston College, this area. So primarily the East. Well, Carolina is recruiting him. So Carolina, uh, we tell all the schools recruiting him. His dream, the coach's dream, the family's dream, everybody's dream is if Dean Smith says he's good enough, he's going to go to play at North Carolina. And we're going to wait until there's a kid in state. When he decides where he's going to go, if he goes someplace else, then they're going to offer him the scholarship. Mm. So we wait till the end of the high school season and Phil Ford goes to North Carolina. When Phil Ford goes to North Carolina, Daryl Charles goes to play for Paul Westhead at LaSalle. And we we respected Carolina so much because they kept us completely attuned all year to where we stood with this. And we felt it was worth him waiting all year to play for Carolina and Dean Smith. And when Phil Ford became one of the greatest guards to ever play college basketball, he went there. 
Daryl Charles did not feel so bad because he wound up having scholarship to a very good school and, uh, and had a nice college career and can tell people now, you know, many years after playing that, yeah, Carolina recruited me, but Phil Ford got the scholarship instead of me. That's, that's still a good story for sure. <laughs> Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Coach, um, I wanted to get a, a little more serious note with um, St. Anthony High School. Um, what was the the closing? Was it a surprise? Was it years in the making? Um, I, I'm I'm very baffled by the kind of success you've had, especially in basketball, and also the closing at the same time. Because you figure success would breed, you know, money or more opportunities. Yeah, no, that was yeah, kind of no, the opposite, I, you know, and it actually from, bothers me. So I don't know. You're absolutely right. From the outside looking in, it would appear that that would be true. But then, you know, we all need to be historians. And if we go back to Powell Memorial, where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar started his career, the property was so valuable, it was sold, and the school was closed. Those kids just went to other schools. And then over in New York City, we had a big rivalry with Tolentine High School. Okay? We started playing them in the early 80s, continued to play until their school closed. They had a great tradition, and then Rice High School was the next one, and Rice had unbelievable success. You know, the last great one is Kemba, you know, Kemba who's playing with the Celts right now. And then here in Jersey, it was, you know, Patterson Catholic, which had great teams. And uh, in Jersey City here, there were four schools, St. Anthony's, St. Al's, St. Michael's, and St. Mary's. We lasted the longest of the four. The other three closed years before us, and we managed to keep it open. And it was a simple thing. It cost us about 13000 a year to educate a kid. We were charging $6,100 for tuition. So we were down 7000 per kid. kid. So that meant that our fundraising, if we had 200 kids, uh, that number turns out to be someplace about one3 so you, if, when you start doing the numbers, that would be the number we had reached every year. For about 10 or 15 years, we kept hitting the numbers. And then it just became a point where uh, charter schools opened. Mm-hmm. Kids started to, there was even less. Uh, uh, our facilities at the school were very old. The basketball team was very successful. All of our uh, greatest players that went on to play Nobody wound up being uh, LeBron James. No one started a corporation and just came back and was able to change it. All our graduates, college graduates, have raised their families up. They supported us as best they could. And we just looked at what truly happened is that the Catholic Church was no longer able to subsidize the schools because they had settled uh, lawsuits. Yeah to the tune of about $2 billion. And all of those monies would have kept, uh, you know, many schools open for a long time. That's the reality of what happened. And now more and more schools are closing. We're, you know, we're getting down to the point now where the little Catholic schools in urban areas will be, they'll all be out of business shortly. And the only Catholic schools will be the regional schools that have an endowment. Uh, They're very much more like prep schools than they are, uh, you know, the Catholic inner city schools that we used to have. You you haven't gone through that experience. And I know um, just based on the the legend uh, documentary uh, about that final season at St. Anthony's. And I think you were the president then, right? Is that what you said earlier? Correct. So 
<clears throat> you being so intimately acquainted with that final year, trying to raise the funds to keep it going and really, you know, doing all you could. Do you see, and I think you hinted toward this, but is there any way in your mind, given your experience in that field, that Catholic high schools do survive? Or is it just a matter of time? Well, I, I just think now that, uh, particularly now, this, this situation now, again, is causing more and more problems with, you know, if parents are going to be home with their kids mm. and they're paying tuition for Catholic school, why would they have them in Catholic school? Yes. You would take them out and you would put them in public school where they can do the virtual learning. I mean, this is going on a college. People are not paying for a semester uh, at a college right now if it's going to be virtual. They're looking at, you know, maybe putting their children in community colleges, you know, getting credits that they can transfer down the road. So this certainly affects us. But I just think it's the simple thing of uh, it's it had a role it no longer has role. I think charter schools have absorbed a part of the role. Certainly in New York City, there's so many charter schools. Uh, uh, the place for the small Catholic schools has probably gone. Uh, it's gone another direction. And the one thing that really affected as much as money is that there aren't the amount of vocations they used to be. Mm. When you went to Catholic school, if you went, I went to St. Peter's Prep, they're all uh, primarily Jesuits teaching. When I went to St. Paul's Grammar School, I had all nuns. I did not have anybody no but nuns people. in grammar school. Nothing but nuns. Now, when you're at a school like at St. Anthony's, when St. Anthony's closed, we did not have one religious teaching at the school, which meant that we were now paying uh, salaries for every single teacher. In addition, we were paying all the health benefits, too. And the health benefits, we weren't getting help from the archdiocese. And when you add a salary and health benefits, that becomes a significant number and those numbers really, uh, you know, really inflated what we had, what we were trying to reach. And I know everybody, everybody's in this, uh, uh, schools are closing and more and more closing. And it's, uh, uh, I think we'll get down to prep school type schools that will be more prep school than, uh, Catholic education based, uh, you know, uh, uh you know, faith-based schools. Right. Right. Coach, uh, did you have, you know, in your tenure, a favorite season of yours, one that may, maybe just stood out above all else? Uh, because you've had so much success, so I, I don't even know how you would be able to choose. But do you have one that yeah. sticks out more than the others? I think I think it always goes to the the, the, the over teams that maybe overachieved. Hmm. So if I if I was looking for teams that overachieved, uh, probably the the first one that jumps out is in 1982. We won the Hudson County Championship here, and we were playing in the county league, so we played at St. Peter's College, probably 5,000 people at the game. We played Snyder High School, which is the public school where I grew up, neighborhood I grew up in. Tremendous team. They were uh, probably 15-point favorites, wow. and we came out and spread the court and gave this little sophomore guard, David Rivers, the ball, and he just put on a 32-minute show. And we won a, a low-scoring game with him just kind of, you know, controlling the game. That was one. And then, uh, you know, over the year. That was my birth year, by the way. Pardon? That was my birth year, so I want to thank you for that. Oh, geez. Yeah, see, I'm going to date myself here. When I, I, don't, I, think, I don't even think that's way back. <laughs> so probably, probably the one team, that my, the 95 team, was a good team with uh, a lot of young kids. I think we had uh, – one or two seniors on the team. 
And we went down and played in a tournament, Charm City in Baltimore. And it was the emergence of this team going on some run. We got down there, and the first night we played Dunbar. Dunbar, just a couple of years earlier, had won a couple of national championships. They still had a really good team. We're in Baltimore playing Dunbar. We beat them a close game. That same night, Lincoln, Brooklyn, with, uh, uh, with Steph Marbury, they're playing, and they're playing uh, uh, Lake Clifton from Baltimore. Lake Clifton is loaded. They beat uh, Lincoln by almost 20, right? So now we're going to play them the next night. And we say to kids, let's get out of here. Let's go to bed. Let's do everything we can to get ready for tomorrow because I really believe they're not going to take us seriously. They saw us. We look nothing like Lincoln, and they crushed Lincoln. So we get to the game, and we watch them when they come out to warm up. They're really lethargic. The crowd isn't really into this. We're looking at this. I'm saying to the kids, we can start here and get a good start. So we're playing in the first quarter, and one of my guys banks in a three from the top of the circle. Hmm. And everybody looks at each other, and we go, ooh, this might be our game. That's a message from the big guy that we got a shot. So I think we keep it maybe six at halftime or eight at halftime. So we go in. Everybody's sitting in the locker room. Everybody, coaches, all of us are smiling. We can't believe that they didn't take us apart. They were so big and physical that at one point in the first half, their big guy was about 6'8", probably about 230 pounds. He looked like a bouncer in a club. And now he dislocates his ring finger. So he comes over. And his finger is at a 45-degree angle. Ooh. So he comes over, and we're sitting in the stands scouting, and all the kids and me. And we look at the finger, and the kids are all putting their heads down. And he goes to the guy, snap it for me. So the, the guy on the side snaps it up, gets a piece of tape, puts, around, puts it around, goes back in, plays the rest of the game. So oh. now we're playing this dude, and we're up six or eight at halftime. So we said, all right, coach is in there. They had Shante Rogers who won the Bob Cousy Award that year, best guard, when, when he's a senior, best guard in the country, under six foot, five t talented Division One players. I don't have a senior playing. So uh, one senior playing. So now we uh, went, we, we got out on the floor. We sorry, he's yelled and screamed at them. They're going to come out. If we can play these first four minutes, play them even, keep it at six, we could win this thing. Sure enough, we go out. We fight them off. It's about six heading into the last minute, two and a quarter. We score at the buzzer. It goes to 10 at the end of the third quarter. 10. <laughs> We're beating this team. They should be up 15 or 20. We're up 10. But ready for this now? <laughs> now they're going to press us. We believe that they, the guys just went out after the game that night, looked at us, and didn't, didn't, get do, didn't do their due diligence. Right. Whatever they wound up doing, they weren't ready. So fourth quarter starts, and we said, you know what we're going to do? They're pressing us now. We're going to attack the press on every possession. And I had a little guard named Ned Felton, who was a senior that year. He wound up going to James Madison to play for Lefty Drizel. He blasted it through the press for the entire fourth quarter. We outscored them by 20 points in the fourth quarter oh. and won the game by 32 points. Yeah. We now went from nothing in the national rankings we became the number 12 team in the country, and we weren't even in the rankings because the whole country was looking at that tournament. Right. From that game, 
We won the New Jersey Tournament of Champions that year, the next year, and the year after. So we went three-peat. We won 83 games in a row to set the all-time New Jersey record. Based on winning that game, it all started. Wow. Because these guys, two seniors, Ned Felton and Eugene Atkinson, and a bunch of young guys who after the game, we said, guys, let's stay loose. Look what just happened. And we went three straight state championships, won the national championship the following year in 96, and went on some run. Wow. That is something else. That is so impressive. Let me say. And Lincoln went on to win the New York City Championship that year. So right, right. that shows how crazy this game was. Yeah. <laughs> are you, so are you considering, do you consider yourself a retired coach at this point in your life? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a basketball coach who's, who, whose school closed. <laughs> You're on hiatus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I still do. I still have, uh, I go to a bunch of uh, practices, high school and college. Uh, guys ask me to come in, watch practice, which I love to do, take my notes. Guys kind of give me a couple things beforehand. They want me to go in and grill the team after it. So whether it's King Rice uh, down at Monmouth or uh, or it's uh, Tobin Anderson up at St. Thomas Aquinas, I'll go to the practices, talk to the teams. And uh, I totally enjoy that. Do that the high school teams. I do it for Ben. I do it for uh, you know Phil Calicchio at Elizabeth. I'll do it for a bunch of guys. And I love doing that. I uh, go to a lot of college games. I've been watching the kids at St. Anthony's finish playing. Yeah. Uh, I've done, since this pandemic began, I don't know how many Zooms I've done with coaches. I'm doing a, a couple of different coaching associations. I'm doing something for the Philippines coming up. Oh, and man. I've been doing two Zooms a week in a driveway in Union, New Jersey, with my grandson and all of the guy, kids from Jersey City who can't come to the gym anymore. I do those. And we do an hour of hoops uh, two days a week or three days a week. Wow. So, yeah, I'm still involved. And, I, and this summer, unfortunately, I would usually run five weeks of basketball camp during the summer. Three weeks up in the Poconos, two weeks down at Jersey Shore. And because of this, uh, just the issues at my age, being around so many kids and hands-on. Because when I'm working with the kids, if the kids, other groups are playing, I'm sitting in the bleachers with the kids waiting to play and we're sitting there talking about everything going on. It just wasn't, uh, you know, just didn't make sense for me to do it. So hopefully we get out of this and I can do some of that, which I absolutely love, you know, getting young kids, uh, you know, working with them and, uh, and teaching them, you know, the way Larry Brown would say, maybe the right way to learn how to play. Hmm. Tell me something. Uh, what would you give, uh, what would be your, your advice for coaches, whether they're upcoming or they're now, because you're a man that has great success. What would you impart? What kind of wisdom would you impart for those type of people that are in the coaching ranks right well, now? I think, I, think that you, I think from the beginning to the end is that education is ongoing. So uh, you're going to have, you, there may be a style of play you're going to want to play. That's kind of fit by your personality. But more than your personality, it should fit the kids that you get. If you want to play a certain style, it should fit the kids. And you shouldn't try to make the kids fit the style of play. I love to tell a story about uh, uh, Jack Hartman was the coach of Southern Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I heard him speak when I was a young guy. His team had just won the NIT back when the NIT was kind of the equivalent of the NCAA tournament. All right. And he, uh, he won the tournament and he ran this 1-3-1 offense. So I heard him in the clinic and everybody I know from Jersey, everybody took these notes. We all went scurrying back. 
And uh, I was a JV coach at the time. So I got this one, three, one offense in and probably sometime in January, you started running into guys and everybody's asking, you still run that one, three, one offense. <laughs> and they say, well, I still got it, but I'm not using it as much. And it turned out the reason why it was so successful is that Walt Frazier was the man on the foul line in the offense. Oh. And they ran the offense through Clyde Frazier. So if you put Clyde Frazier in the middle of anything, whether it's the triangle or any of the things run, a guy as good as, uh, as Walt Frazier is going to make any offense look good. So <laughs> you got to be careful what you hear because sometimes these college coaches can recruit what they need for the offense to be what it is. A lot of the better coaching goes on in high school, and that's because we're flexible. We coach the kids up. Uh, you know, we, we get the kids away. We, you know, we get the kids to go from, from one point to another. And uh, I think it's just figure out a way now to exist with the way basketball is played now, where the out-of-season basketball has a really big role in kids' lives. Yet there's still playing in a packed gym in high school, going to somebody else's gym and playing, you know, like uh, Lincoln, Brooklyn, going to play, you know, Thomas Jefferson or going to play Grady. That's a big game when the local teams play or or Malloy going to play, you know, Christ the King. King, Games like that are big games. And when you play well in somebody else's gym, that shows you've developed the poise that it can trans, it can carry over. A lot of times when you're playing in the tournaments and you're playing multiple games over a weekend and basically the only ones watching the games are coaches and there's no noise, it's like the Yankee game right now where you can hear the, you can hear the ball, you know, you can hear, uh, you know, uh, uh, the pitcher right now, uh, ball hitting the, the uh, catcher's mitt because there's nothing going on. It's very different and, and it, it shows with the adrenaline going can you play, have poise, and play maybe in a little more structured situation than the great games that the kids play out of season? And that's a that's a hard thing for a coach right now to keep a kid's loyalty when he's on a very good AAU team, but he's still playing for the high school, and people are telling him he should go play for some prep school someplace instead of playing for his local school. And I, I still believe you can do both, and I think ha- playing for two different people like that would really help you as a, your career. Coach, I I don't know what to say. This has been such a great opportunity. We've learned a ton. Yes. Had a great freaking time also. You're <laughs> you're a special guy. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I want you to go back, enjoy the game, the Yankee game, <laughs> be with your wife, throw one back for us, and uh, Adult beverage. we look forward to seeing you out there in the world at some point and seeing that, that amazing uh, – acumen that you have kind of on display out there even if it's just you screaming at some kids i'd love to take that in definitely experience the the bob hurley effect (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, you you don't quite see it now it's uh, it's uh it's definitely the grandfather working with the kids now because these kids are 10 11 12 13 (laughs) i don't want to scare a kid out of a sport at this point in (laughs) very well coach thank you so much for your time i had a love it Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. You're an amazing okay. guy. Thank you for your time. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dribbling Dimes. If you like what you heard, please leave a review or comment wherever you're listening to us now. Check us out on social media as well. We're live on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
on all platforms you can find us at D-R-I-B-B-L-E-N-D-I-M-E-S.